Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can always find my next guest anywhere that there's a coastline, and odds are she may be getting ready to dive into the ocean. Dr. Ellen Prager is one of the biggest names in earth and ocean science communication, having done countless speaking engagements and written a handful of books. The ocean is one of the Earth's most unexplored avenues, and Dr. Prager has made it her mission to understand this landscape, or should I say waterscape, and make it understandable to all audiences, fellow doctors, and children alike. Ellen, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, you you know, I've followed your career for the last several years and just someone that I've wanted to talk to on the Weather Geeks podcast for so long. Uh, before we really get into some of the interesting things that you do with our earth and oceans, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in earth science and ocean science. So, you know, like many people as a kid, I loved nature. I loved exploring, you know, climbing trees, jumping through creeks. And in high school, I was teaching swimming lessons, and the, the people I worked with brought some scuba tanks to the pool. And they said, do you want to try these? And I said, sure. So I put a scuba tank on, jumped into the pool, and they couldn't get me out. <laughs> I just thought it was the most amazing thing ever just to be able to sit underwater. And so I actually went back to my parents and said, I want to learn how to scuba dive. And so then when I discovered marine science, and I could combine that with my love of nature and scuba diving, as they say, I was hooked. So it was really just bringing together things that I was really passionate about. Yeah. When I talk to many of our guests here on the Weather Geeks podcast, oftentimes they're in the weather climate world and there's usually some type of weather experience or uh, something from their childhood. And, I, you know, given the community that you kind of grew up in, I, I've often wondered, uh, are the experiences the same for other sort of sub-disciplines of earth sciences? Because usually when I talk to meteorologists, it's some storm or hurricane or tornado that came through their, uh, their town. So it's interesting to hear your perspective there. What about sort of your schooling? Tell us about your background. And, and your degrees are from uh, Massachusetts at Wesleyan, and then you have a master's degree at the uh, University of Miami, and then a Ph.D. from LSU. What are those degrees in? Are they all in marine sciences or oceanography? No, actually, my undergraduate was at Wesleyan in Connecticut, and I studied environmental science with a concentration in geology, but I took a semester away and studied tropical marine science in the Caribbean at, at a place that was then called West Indies Lab, where a lot of the world's sort of older coral reef science actually got a, a start, and it was amazing. So that was my undergraduate. Then I, I studied marine geology and biology at the University of Miami for my master's and, and loved it. But then I realized, and this is sort of an important thing about coral reefs, it's not just biology or geology. It's also physical oceanography that controls the growth and the health of coral reefs. And so for my PhD, I went to work with one of the only scientists at the time 
working on physical oceanography and coral reefs. That was Dr. Harry Roberts at LSU. And so I wanted to broaden my background to really understand how coral reefs work. So let's, I want to kind of pivot right there on coral reefs for a second. I mean, this is a conversation I'm talking with Dr. Ellen Prager. I've got a lot that I want to talk with her about today, but you mentioned coral reefs and they have been one of the bellwethers, if you will, for sort of our changing climate system. What's, what's the latest on what we know about how coral are responding to warming oceans and changing acidification in the ocean, et cetera? So I am somebody who has been very cautious over the years not to sound alarmist. Yes. But coral reefs are not doing well. Corals, it turns out, and and sometimes I think people don't understand this, corals do well in a short range of temperature. They have an optimum range. When you go either too cold or too hot, they get stressed. And when they get stressed, they actually expel an algae that lives within their tissues and is sort of a partner in life. And when this happens, they people probably heard this term, they bleach. And sometimes if the stress is short-term, they can come back from that. But if the stress is either long-term or chronic, it happens over and over, that can be fatal. And across the world's coral reefs, we've had numerous bleaching events 2016 was particularly bad, and we've lost a lot of our coral reefs. And now it's not clear that they're going to come back or that more are at risk. So we're really, the corals, I can say, are really in trouble right now. Is the bleaching associated more with the temperature or the ocean acidification? Ocean acidification, just for our listeners, and you can certainly give do it better justice than I can, Is but I, my understanding is that the oceans are also absorbing carbon dioxide as well, and I guess there's a, various chemical reactions that create, I guess, carbonic acid or something along the lines of that, and so you get ocean acidification. So we've got sort of the warming and then the acidification, which is taking most of the toll on the coral? So it's actually a triple whammy. Okay, good. It's temperature. It's the, like you're saying, the ocean is becoming more acidic or the pH is falling. And sea level is rising at a very rapid rate. And so the most, probably the most stressor, the thing that's most stressing them the most is the temperature change because it's happening so fast. They don't have time to adapt to it. But The acidification, we think, could harm their ability to create their skeletons. And if sea level rises too fast, they can't grow quick enough to keep up with being in shallow enough depth to have the algae within their tissues photosynthesize. So the bleaching, we think, is mainly the temperature. But all these other factors are also impacting them as well. Let's let's geek out. I mean, I want to stay right here on coral for a moment because you just talked about how they're stressed and sort of responding to these changes in our climate system. Give the listener a sense of why coral are important to the overall marine ecosystem and, and, and to life on the planet. So corals are not only important to the ocean, just like you said, but to human society as well. For the ocean, they provide an incredibly important habitat for marine life. That while they're less than 1% of the coverage of the ocean, you know, within the oceans, it's like something like 25% of marine species live in coral reefs. They're very diverse habitats. So they provide habitat. They provide a place where uh, organisms feed. For human society, what many people might not recognize, not only do they support fisheries, 
huge tourism industry and recreation industry, so an economic and jobs there. They also provide protection from the shoreline from storms, tsunamis, flooding. A, a really interesting study recently came out saying how important coral reefs are to prevent flooding, which is a big issue right now. So across the board, coral reefs are important for the ocean ecosystem, but for human society as well. And there's been an estimate that on an annual basis, coral reefs are, let's just say a conservative estimate is a trillion dollars a year to human society. Wow. Wow, that that number stuns me. And I, I think what you're saying is something that I, you know, I hope as podcast listeners, here, the Weather Geeks podcast listeners understand, because we talk a lot about a lot of topics on the show, and sometimes they're in isolation, they're weather or they're ocean or climate. But I think one of the points that you're making here, and something that I've spent a good deal of time studying from various perspectives as well, is that the Earth actually is a system. Uh, we, we often talk about something called Earth system science. And so the weather and the, the marine ecosystem, the oceans and the biosphere, they're all connected. So uh, hopefully from what you just said, the listener understands that there are things that are happening in different parts of the world or different parts of the Earth system that very much can affect you. And the reason I spend time saying that is oftentimes you'll hear people say, so what the coral is bleaching or so what uh, there's El Nino in the uh, eastern Pacific Ocean. And how does that affect me in um, central Iowa? So it's really important to make those connections. Now, you've participated in research expeditions in the Galapagos Islands, Papua New Guinea, the Caribbean, Bahamas off the deep waters of the Florida Reef track. Do you have a favorite place that you like to study or geek out on? Marshall, that, that's kind of like asking if I have a favorite child. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I have, I have favorite places for different reasons. Um, I have a real connection to the Caribbean because a lot of my student work and graduate work, a lot of my inspiration came from the Caribbean. I love the Galapagos, and I'm fortunate to continue to work in the Galapagos because it's such an unusual mix of animals. You know, in your textbook, it says you have warm water creatures, and then you have cold water. But in the Galapagos, there's tropical fish and sharks and sea turtles, and then a, a penguin with them by. So it's a very unique environment. So I, I have favorites for different reasons, I think. I, I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper because I know that you were the previously the chief scientist for the Aquarius Reef Base Program in Key Largo. And one of the things that I know about that, that particular location, it includes the world's only, I think, the world's only undersea research station. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So the Aquarius Reef Base is an undersea lab where scientists can go and live underwater for a week or more to study the coral reefs. And, you know, it's really cool. You're sort of sleeping with the fishes, literally. But what it gives you is time and access to the coral reef. So if you're scuba diving from the surface and let's say you need to do your work at 100 feet down, you might have 15, 20 minutes a day before you run into decompression issues. If you're living at 50 feet, you have six to nine hours to scuba dive to 100 feet to do your work. So it's it's an amazing place that allows you access to the underwater world that you really can't get in another way. And, okay, it's kind of cool to live underwater. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, how many people can actually say I've lived underwater for any significant amount of time? <laughs> I think that's really interesting. 
I want to pick your brain. We're going to talk. I'm talking with Dr. Ellen Prager, and she's one of the world's top experts on everything marine science, oceanography, and whatnot. Uh, also an excellent science commuter and communicator, and we're going to dive deeply into that later in the podcast. But I, I want to stay with the science for a second. We talked about coral reefs and sort of the stresses there. What else keeps you up at night as a scientist uh, concerning our oceans? I mean, what are some of the things that you worry about that we should be aware of as listeners? So um, I actually have a new book coming out probably early next year. And we don't have an exact title yet, but it's about the big science unknowns in things like climate change, volcanoes, hurricanes. And doing the research for this book and talking to scientists across the world, one of the, you know, I think a lot of people probably thinking this, for me, climate change is just a huge worry, partly because I think we've underestimated how quickly it's happening and how fast the impacts are going to happen. And that I don't think we're doing enough about it. So, you know, especially after doing the research for this book, one of the things that um, it was, I have to tell you, it was fascinating. I talked to a lot of the glaciologists, and they said that, you know, the big unknown for them is how fast and how much are the ice sheets and glaciers going to melt? Because we're just learning how that works and that it's happening faster than we've predicted. And so if you talk about things like sea level rise, um, ocean warming, changes in ocean circulation, changes in populations of fisheries and plankton that related to climate change, that, that has to be, for me, the biggest worry. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Dr. Ellen Prager, one of the most fascinating guests that I've had yet on the podcast. So thank you for joining us. I want to pick back up where we left off in the previous segment. You mentioned ocean circulations. One of the big things that I I see a lot of discussion about amongst colleagues, uh, and it it actually is related to the ice sheet uh, melting, is the sort of, I guess, large ocean conveyor belt or thermohaline circulation and the implications for that. Uh, If you would, could you just describe, again, many people may have seen the movie The Day After Tomorrow, for example. That was a movie that I remember seeing several several years ago. And I think the premise of the movie is that, that that conveyor belt or thermohaline circulation either shut down or reversed or something like that. And the weather around the world went crazy. Now, as I told USA Today when they interviewed me to give it a grade on the science, this little, much of the science was a bit hyperbolic, exaggerated. But talk to the listeners about the importance of that circulation. So I agree with you 100%. The, the science was a little bit over-dramatized, but I love that movie because I, I thought... I, I thought it bring attention to some of the, like you were saying earlier, the connections in our world with the ocean and the atmosphere. Okay, so there will be no instant freeze hurricanes. <laughs> but, but, so the way the thermal healing circulation works, and that, you know, that's kind of a big word for a lot of people. It just means how the changes in salinity and temperature drive 
circulation. So what happens is you have um, ice formation and cooling in the high northern latitudes, somewhere around the Labrador and Greenland area, and that water becomes very heavy and sinks. It flows down into the deep North Atlantic, flows south, and it ends up flowing deep in the ocean, and this is cold, salty water. It ends up flowing around the world's oceans, circulating, picking up some more deep water near Antarctica, and then over time, as it's moving through the world's oceans, it starts to warm up and it gradually loses some of that salinity and slowly rises to the surface. And on the surface, it ends up flowing back from the other oceans into the uh, Atlantic, into the South Atlantic, then up a lot of it through the Gulf Stream, up into the North Atlantic, and that process happens, it starts again. We think the cycle takes about a thousand years for that, for that what we call this conveyor belt flow to occur. And just like you said, one of the big questions with climate change is, is it slowing down or, or could it potentially stop because of the fresh water being entered through ice melt into the, Atlanta, into the Arctic area? Will that shut this down? Yeah, that's good a, question. That, that's a big <laughs> question, and one that quite a few scientists are thinking about. Even one of my colleagues at the University of Georgia, Professor Tom Mote, and his colleagues and many others have been looking at sort of these rapid melting events in Greenland over the past several years right. and whatnot. And, 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 and for the listener that you know may not be an Earth scientist, much of the ice sheets and much of the ice in the Arctic is freshwater, and there are very much differences in the density of freshwater and salt water and so that that changes some really interesting dynamics in the ocean as you as you just heard uh, Dr. Prager talk about. You were the previous assistant dean at the University of Miami uh, Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Sciences. You have many titles, a freelance writer, a science advisor to celebrity cruises, a consultant. I want to explore these many uh, hats that you wear and have worn. I want to start with your freelance writing. You've written nine, count it, nine books so far. Um, First of all, what kind of books do you write of those nine? I mean, are they all earth science or or ocean related or do they span run the gamut? So I actually, you know, it's funny. I, I never thought of myself as a writer, but started writing for a popular audience and for children and just discovered a love of doing this. And the reaction from my audience and readers has been so good that it really inspired me to keep going. So I actually write young children's books that are typically nonfiction. Um, I also write nonfiction for adults, so popular science. And then one of my favorite things to do is write fiction for middle graders, which is like 8 to 12 years old, that combines humor and adventure with science and learning about nature and environmental issues. So fiction and nonfiction sort of across the board these days. Now, now one book title, I have to admit, caught the eyes of our producers. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know where I'm going. <laughs> Sex, Drugs, and Sea Slime, The Ocean's Oddest Creatures and Why They Matter. What's that book about and where in the world did you come up with that title? <laughs> okay, so, Okay, so really it's about Marine biodiversity. But, you know, that's kind of a boring title for me to just call it marine biodiversity. But it's really about the diversity of life in the ocean and why it's important to not only the marine ecosystem, but to human society as well. 
Now, and in fact, that wasn't even the original title when I sold the, <laughs> sold the concept to the publisher. Yeah, but I bet they loved it. Though, when they... <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but what happened is, what I discovered is that within the ocean, there are a lot of creatures that scientists are looking at either for pharmaceuticals or to use the biomedical models. So that's where the drug comes from. Many organisms in the ocean, because it's very efficient, use mucus for some things like catching food, for travel, to defend themselves. Okay, it's, it's simply slime. And then it turns out for to bring forth the next generation, many creatures in the sea have developed some rather strange and unusual reproductive strategies. And so when you put those things together, you have sex, drugs, and sea slime. Aha. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, I, I have to say, now that you explain it, it's not that foreign of a concept to me. Just just recently down at St. Simon Island, I was talking with uh, my colleague from University of Georgia, Dr. Mandy Joy, who I'm sure you know. And she was I was telling her my daughter is interested in being a pharmacologist with, you know, making drugs and researching drug products. And she said the new frontier for drugs is the ocean. And so, as you as I listen to you talk, I mean, it's it, that that makes sense, and my and so I'm going to sort of steer her perhaps in that direction because she's interested in pharmacology, but she also at an earlier age had an interest in marine science in the ocean as well. Your tenth book is getting released soon, October 2019. Is this the book you were referring to earlier, Escape Galapagos? Nope. So I have actually two new books coming out. Um, Escape Galapagos will be released October. And it is the the first book in what I hope will be a new fiction series for middle graders. And, it, and again, it combines adventure and humor with learning about the science and nature of the Galapagos. And I always put in these books some very uh, current issues that are impacting our world. In this one, I have things like wildlife smuggling and invasive species and climate change as mentioned. And Marshall, I'm hoping that the second book in the series, um, it, the focus will be on climate change. Wow. But w- what I've discovered is if you think about middle grade, it's a really important time in a child's life. That's eight, say 8 to 12 or 13 years old. They're discovering their interests. They're starting to get um, – their their interests are getting peaked in careers. They need to develop skills for – for what they're going to do, especially if they're interested in STEM fields. So reading is critical. Map-based learning is critical. But what they like reading is fiction. Yes. And you need to get them to want to read to go further. And so for me, I write these really fun books because I want them to be easy, fun reading just so that they want to learn to read. But it turns out at the same time, I'm kind of tricking them because they're also learning about science and nature at the same time. This is a very important point. Uh, I'm talking with Dr. Ellen Prager uh, here on the Weather Geeks podcast. I, I recently wrote a piece in Forbes about access to science and math for girls. And one of the points I made in that article is that uh, oftentimes people have an aversion to science, particularly kids, even some parents, because it's not made fun or interesting. And so right. it sounds that you uh, very much, again, and again, I love your stealth learning approach in that you're you're writing fiction that appeals to the reader, but you're teaching them at the same time. And I think that's important. Well, thank you. And, you know, what's really fun in the back of this book, and it will be in the back of every book, I have a section called Real Versus Made Up. And I ask them, you know, I go through some of the things that happen in the book, and I ask them, do they think they're real 
you know, based on real science or is it made up? And then on the next couple of pages, I tell them which is real and which is made up. And so it's really, I think it's going to be really fun and it's something that educators can use. And I will tell you that in my other fiction books for middle graders, I have sort of the main character is a, a boy. But I'm proud to say in this one, the main character is a girl. Nice. Now, where where can people, if, if they're listening right now and they say, wow, I'd love to get, get a copy of some of these books for my, my child or I'd love to read them myself, where can they go and find them? So you can, you know, easy enough. I mean, almost all of my books are on Amazon. Um, the publisher, you can pre actually pre-order the Escape Galapagos on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or you can go to the publisher that is Tumble, uh, Tumble Home Books. And but but any bookstore if they don't have my books you can order them, and yeah I'm very excited. And then I just want to mention the other book that I mentioned will come out in probably early 2020 with Chicago University of Chicago Press, and that is about the big science unknowns in climate change, volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricanes. That's a more of a a popular science sort of high school and above book. But I'm very excited about that one, too. I spent a couple of years interviewing people, scientists, talking to people about, you know, what do they wish they knew? The scientists who study these things, what do they wish they knew? As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, having an amazing conversation uh, with Dr. Ellen Prager. Uh, she and I have actually known each other, uh, I guess, primarily through social media over the last several years. And so, uh, and I actually have a mutual colleague. Shout out to Dave Jones out there. I know Ellen and I both uh, uh, know and admire Dave Jones, a colleague. And so I want to kind of give him a shout out here on the podcast. Let me just, for the listener, if you just don't realize how big of a deal uh, Dr. Prager is right now, just from listening to her, she was a consultant for the Disney movie Moana. She has recently been hired, or previously been hired by the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy to help write their report to Congress and the president. And she has served as a science advisor to the to celebrity cruises on the Galapagos Islands. I want to kind of dig into all three of those. First, let's start with Moana. How'd that come about? And, and I'm looking at a note here from the producers. Is that when you thought you really made it? Or is that, is that one of the highlights <laughs> of your career? I mean, not everyone consults Disney movies. So tell us about that experience. Yeah, that that. That was huge for me. I was so happy to do that. So I actually, I have to say, I, I kind of got a call out of the blue on that one from Disney. Um, they had found my name through something called the Earth Science Exchange. It's Earth Science Entertainment Exchange. Um, and I had put my name in that as a potential consultant on films or uh, news shows and things. And so they called me and asked me if I would be interested. And of course, that was an easy yes. And... It was so much fun. I actually ended up, at one point, went out to the studios. I was out giving a talk already in California, and they invited me to come to the studio, and I gave a talk to a, an, an auditorium full of Disney people working on the movie. And, and then they asked me questions about the ocean and about the properties of the ocean that they wanted to put in the, in the movie. And I can tell you there's one line in the movie for sure 
that came from that talk because I, I said something really? and they didn't know what it was and I explained it and then it's in the movie. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I was, it was awesome. I was like, yes. And so I, I really enjoyed that. Again, it comes back to adding science in subtle ways to entertainment. I think that that is such an important and effective way to engage people in learning. And just like you said, particularly those people who might not be interested in science per se or might be intimidated by science, I think we can do better at using entertainment to engage them. So, yes, it was a highlight so far. Well, Disney, if you're out there, I'd love to do more. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, clearly, if anyone's listening, I think, you know, she's one of the top tech ex, top experts in the world. But she's more importantly for me, and the reason I enjoy colleagues like Ellen, she is a scientist that gets it. We cannot just talk science in the ivory tower and in our conferences and in journals that 500 people at most may read in the, in the entire life cycle of a scholarly paper. Now, don't get me wrong. The scientific process, the scientific method and publishing in these places are important because that's where we establish credible science. But if we are not conveying that science to the broader public, uh, it gets lost, and I think policymakers actually start asking questions about the so what's and why are we investing in science at the deep ocean. So uh, that that pivots me to your work you did with the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy. Uh, so you 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 have some exposure to sort of the policy arena. Tell us about your perspective on science and policy and how we best do that. So I I think right now we're in a very dangerous time. Right now, science, the, the credibility of science and of credible science is, is being questioned. And it is so important to build policy based on good science. And we're not doing it right now. Um, you know, I, I'm, I have been a, a critic of this administration, and I will say I, I think they're doing great harm to the credibility of science and the use of science in making wise and smart decisions. We, it, it is so important that we look to the science. It is how we understand our world. And so um, I, I was very happy to be involved in, in Washington in policy you know, year, years ago when I worked with the commission. And we spent a lot of time, and I think you will appreciate this, we spent a lot of time talking about who is our audience for the report, how should it be written, how much science do we include, um, how much do we put together in summaries versus what do we show them? And so there was a, great, a good discussion about that, which I think is very important to how do you get the science to the policymakers so they understand its importance and how it relates to whatever they're working on. So, yeah, I, I'm a little frustrated. I think, <laughs> yeah, like I think many scientists I think are many, right now. Many scientists are. And I want to, I want to follow up on that because, I mean, I want to get your thoughts on this because we are in a time frame where you hear a lot of talk about the earth being flat or uh, we see a comeback of measles. We see situ I just I just tweeted yesterday an article. A man called in and said the reason we're seeing more tornadoes is because of all the traffic circles that we're seeing. Oh, my gosh. In the city. And he was serious. So I know some of this is just sort of deficiencies in science literacy, but. It feels to me like there is a very sort of 
concentrated or concerted effort on science. I mean, there was a recent report I saw a couple of years ago on many science topics where the scientists that study those topics, you know, are very much apart from the public in terms of what they understand or believe about that topic. Ellen, how did we get here where an expert actually on a particular science topic says this and the public says, no, I don't believe you or no, you have an agenda. What are your thoughts? Well, I think part of the problem is that there is funding behind giving visibility to people that aren't credible but are talking science. And there's a lack of funding to give visibility to the scientists who could get out there and talk. You know, a lot of the work that I do is sort of I'm sort of scheming and I fund it through other projects. And people don't pay me to do a lot of the things that I do to bring science to the public. You know, I'm not making money off these books. I'm not. Most of the time when I give talks at schools or aquariums, it's it's pretty rare that I'm getting paid very much. And so we haven't invested, and that's the right word, we have not invested in bringing credible science to the public in ways that you reach the masses. We're really good at reaching the choir, the people who are already interested in science. But getting out beyond that in ways that will engage more people, we haven't invested in that. And, and the, the people on the other side for their, who have their own agenda, and for them it's important for, to discredit science, they have invested in people to do that. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and one I often make as well. That's why it's so important. I mean, you know, people hear me doing weather geeks or writing articles in Forbes, but at the end of the day, I'm I'm a professor at a university, and I do the things that professors do. I teach, I do research, uh, I um, publish those things and whatnot. But it's important to bring that expertise outside of that that environment because if we don't, if the Ellens and Marshalls aren't doing it, then there are people that are skilled in messaging and trained at persuading people that may have agendas or other other goals in mind. And so I think we, we have to, I, mean, yep. I, I want to get your thoughts on this because traditionally and early, earlier in my career, I, I felt this sense, even in the academic world, at, even at NASA where I was before, although NASA is actually pretty good about outreach and communication, I will say, but there seemed to be this notion that, oh, scientists that go out into the popular world or write to, or talk to the media or testify before Congress, they're lighter fare. They're, they don't have the gravitas of the academic. There's this perception out there of the, you know, the, the Carl Sagan's and the Neil deGrasse Tyson's of the world weren't credible and for some whatnot. I, I completely disagree with that. But I, I felt that as a young scientist that knew I wanted to go beyond that sphere. Have you sensed that as well? Or what are your thoughts? So first, I want to thank you for the things that you do, because I agree with you 100%. It's so important. Um, I have felt that I think sometimes people, for me, people think I'm just trying to sell books. And again, I'm not really making, it's not like I'm make, I wrote Harry Potter. I'm not making money <laughs> right. off my books. Well, you know, there's <laughs> so, also this misconception that scientists are getting rich off climate change funding, too. Exactly. And that's not exactly. the case at all. We, it is, it's unbelievable. That's right. It's unbelievable. So, or that they're out promoting themselves for some reason. I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, you know, I have done a fair amount of television. I don't really like being on television. But, <laughs> but you're good I at think it, it's though. a Thanks. No, but I think it's a really effective way to reach the audience that we need to reach. Um, so I think, th- I do think that that attitude has shifted a little bit. I think 
the scientific community is more accepting of the fact that we need people to go out there and it's better if they have a good credible science background to talk science. So I think I have felt it more early on, but but I think it's shifting. And one little story I, I want to tell you, I, I recently sat on a panel for a world for a, a sort of world affairs in St. Petersburg, Florida, and we were talking about climate change. And I and when I was talking about data. And my point was that when scientists talk, we're talking about data. But when somebody who's not a scientist talks about climate change or other issues, and they just give their opinion, they're not talking about based on data. And so you have to think about where are you getting your information and what's the right And I had somebody come up to me afterwards, and he actually said to me, I get it now. I should be looking at the data, not just listening to anybody. I should be looking at somebody who's talking to me about the data. And I was so happy because even if it was just that one person, I changed their mind. So, exactly. And that, that's one of the things I often hear with certain science topics, particularly climate change. Do you believe in climate change? I was like, I said, well, you know, it's a, not a belief system. It, you know, the data says what it is, says. And yes, we know climate change is naturally. And yes, hurricanes have happened before. So and you start getting this what a list of what I call zombie theories that, you know, scientists like you and I have <laughs> sort of refuted long ago, but they still live on. People still bring them up to you, even though we've kind of just explained them over and over again. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Ellen Prager on many things, uh, science communication, uh, her work, her books. Is there, I know you have a, a social media presence. Um, is, is there a more public facing social media presence that people can follow you if they want to you know, just hear your thoughts or see what you're up to? Um, they can follow me on uh, Twitter. It's just E.L. Prager on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. You know, I'm always looking for new avenues to, to try and get out there. But I guess, you know, Facebook and, and Twitter is probably the, the best way to follow me. Um, yeah. Like I, you, go ahead, I sorry. hope to find more. Yeah, no, like you, I, I'm really searching for ways to, to reach more people. Now, where, where, are you, where are you coming to us from today? You're in St. Petersburg, is that right? I am. I'm actually coming from, uh, I'm in Tampa right now. Okay. But yep, I'm based in St. Petersburg, but you can find me traveling around, especially with my new books coming out. I'm hoping to be doing a lot of uh, public speaking. I've already got a couple engagements planned where at like South, uh, South Carolina Aquarium, probably the Frost Museum in Miami, um, in Naples, Florida, maybe in Long Beach, California. So once, with the, when the books come out, I really love going out and interacting with people and talking about the, the topics in the books. And that's, you know, kids and, and adults. I'm hoping to get some funding to do some associated activities. So we'll see. But, yeah, you know, look for me out there also giving talks. I can't let you go. I've got one last question before we, we end the podcast because it, it stimulated. I just jarred my own statement made me remember that I wanted <laughs> to ask you this. Uh, what are some of the – because I hear a lot of things about – the atmosphere, weather, and climate myths. What are like one or two of the biggest myths or misconceptions that people have about the ocean? Okay, I'll give you I'll give you a public a sort of wide scale, and then I'll give you a fun kids one. Okay. So, from sort of a, a larger scale, that as humans we can't impact the ocean because it's so big. Well, I think everything you've seen about plastics in the ocean. Uh, temperatures in the ocean, I think that's pretty clear that's not true. Humans ha are clearly impacting the ocean and not in a good way. 
from plastics to climate change to dead zones and excess nutrients were having a huge impact. For kids, one of the, I get two questions a lot. It is, what about mermaids and megalodons? <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I'm sure. So there are no mermaids, physiologically impossible, and the megalodons are extinct. Yes. I could, I could see both of those questions coming out. In fact, I'm pretty sure at some point along the way, my kids have asked about those as well. <laughs> I said, you know, I said similar things. But, you know, I th- even in those opportunities, I think there are opportunities to teach and learn. And that's what Dr. Ellen Prager right. has done. Right. Um, so I, I love I, I love the title of this podcast, The Wonders In, On, and Around the Ocean, because I think you personify uh, the kind of scientists that, that I think we need more of. Uh, any final thoughts before we end? No, I, you know, I just want to thank you, and I, and I agree. I think this podcast, um, the, the kinds of things that you do with social media, and I hope I would like to see more science communication done in an engaging and, ten, and entertaining way, not only on radio and podcasts, but on television and on social media. We need to reach out to the public. So keep doing what you're doing, and you know, people out there and, and want to get involved, I think we need to do more of this. It's really important to to society. And and one thing I'll say is, you know, with climate change, the earth is going to be fine. The planet's going to be fine. It's the humans we have to worry about. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and, you know, I want to just give a shout out to the Weather Channel and, and, and the opportunity to do this weathercast. But I think it is important. I, I think it gives a, ch- a chance to you know, provide some interesting insight and gives the listener access to colleagues like you. And so for that, Ellen, I want to thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you.